Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Spinning the Reel. I am your host, Evan. And I'm your host, Zach. And once again, Cody is he's still not here. I mean, he has an excuse this time. It's uh, it's the new Zelda game is yeah, out. Yeah, Tears of the Kingdom came out uh, <laughs> two days ago, so Cody was preoccupied. But uh, he, he did tell us that hopefully by next week he'll be back. But, you know, we've heard that song and dance before. Um, anyway, we've still got an exciting show. We're back after a couple weeks off here. Uh, we're going to talk about first uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Of course, we're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. We got to. Yeah, definitely. It's a big deal. Biggest release uh, this month, probably. Um, the close to a, a trilogy, a Marvel trilogy. Arguably the best one. I mean, the, very arguably, but let's uh, let's save that for the next section. Yeah. Uh, we're going to touch briefly on the Writers uh, Guild of America going on strike uh, in our middle segment there. And then what are we going to close things out with? Uh, we're talking a couple of new movies um, that have released this year. Uh uh, by the titles of uh, Showing Up, the latest Kelly Reichardt film, mm-hmm. and then Polite Society, whose director I don't remember the name of this off the top yeah. of my head, but uh, a, a movie that actually premiered at Sundance um, that we were both anticipating, but it was not available yeah. for the online pass that we... Nita Manzur is the uh, director's name. Yeah, So, it, but it wasn't available in the online viewing package that, that we had purchased, so uh, we got to see it in theaters, and we're going to talk a little bit about right. that. Which might even be... For the best that we saw it in theaters instead of, you know. Oh, definitely a great theater experience. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk about those. And uh, yeah, with that, let's dive right in. All right, Zach, so let's start things off as we so often do on this show with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, We're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. This is a movie that has had sort of a tumultuous journey to the screen, I feel like. Uh, You know, the first two Guardians were so well-received, and then James Gunn got fired and subsequently rehired and has since become the um, basically the director of now the DC yeah, cinematic he's, universe. He's like president of development over there for for the DC extended universe. Yeah, and so like that's cool for him. Uh, but in the interim here, he has been working on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, which is in and some the ways holiday special and the holiday. Did you watch the holiday special? I did. I Atrocious. watched the holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hate it. It was silly. It was silly. In uh, in like uh, I don't know. I think they just didn't have the budget to do some of like the weird things that they were trying to do but it doesn't matter we're not here to talk about the the christmas special i mean it's important precursor you know if you didn't watch that then you're completely lost that's true (laughs) kevin bacon's there the whole time and you're just like (laughs) what the hell um yeah so anyway this is a movie that sort of in some ways wraps up the stories of the central characters of the guardians of the galaxy also expands the stories of some of the other characters and and pushes the whole team in sort of a different direction does seem like they're going to be back in some way, shape, or form, but maybe just not in a Guardians of the Galaxy standalone kind of movie. Um, how would you describe the plot of this movie, though? Uh, I think the plot's pretty straightforward. Um, at, in the events of the second film, uh, the Guardian sort of, well, Rocket specifically, uh, double-crosses a you know uh, 
a client that hired them, the sovereign race, mm-hmm. to protect their Anilax batteries. He stole them, and then they were hunting them. Ego stepped in. The whole events of the second film, right? But basically, they betrayed this 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 right. race uh, of people who the now are, people. are seeking revenge on them. Yeah. Um, and Adam Warlock is released to hunt them down. Uh, he tracks them to their home base on nowhere, you know, uh, the dead planet. And then, um, when he shows up, sort of takes him by surprise and tries to kill them. And mm-hmm. in, in, in that assassination attempt, Rocket is mortally wounded. Uh, and as they try to, um, revive him and, and heal him, they realize that there's a device in his body that essentially will kill him if they try to interfere uh, because he's considered private property right. by a corporation. So basically like a genetic engineering yeah. company. Mm-hmm. And so that besets him on this journey to uh, find what what's called like a bypass code i think is how they refer sure. to it essentially it's a they're just trying to disable yeah. they're just trying to disable this kill switch that exists in their friend so they can you know he's in a coma they want him to wake up yep uh, so that's the whole thing is they're, they're going on this journey to uh rescue rocket right and then along the way they uh basically have to face off with rocket's I wouldn't say Rocket's creator because obviously he was a raccoon before he was, you know, made sentient. And I guess raccoons are sentient, but like in a higher sense. Right. Um, yeah. And that that villain, like I said, is the high evolutionary. Uh, he's the big bad in this movie. Uh, it's revealed that he sent Adam Warlock to go retrieve Rocket. Uh, and that's that's sort of the movie. Um, what did you think of it? Uh, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, for the most part, there's a couple things that you know. I wasn't a huge fan of uh, just because of my own personal feelings about these characters. Uh, but overall, I think that it was a pretty well-structured third film, like, a, you know, a, a good final entry into into this trilogy of, of the Guardians. Um, overall, I, I was pretty pleased with it. Yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, I think we've learned from basically any of the movies that James Gunn has been involved in uh for the most part are pretty funny and have like a a sharp sense of humor and the characters in these movies like um well Dave Batista as Drax especially has always kind of hit that note that he's looking for uh and Drax is very funny again in this movie um Will Poulter as uh Adam Warlock is I think for me maybe the highlight of the film which really, I think he is really funny in this movie, and so he is like the, created to be this perfect being, kind of uh, more or less. Mm-hmm. And he's pulled out of his like cocoon early, and he's just kind of dumb. Yeah, he's and like it's, a toddler. Yeah, and it's just funny because he's like he he like incinerates somebody in a scene, and then he's just like, I don't know that I feel so good about that. Like, yeah, it's just, yeah, he's like this he's, feels bad. He's like grappling with uh, morality and like yeah. as he's going and, and being sent to do these things, and it's just it's funny. Um, the high evolutionary, the guy's name is uh, Chuck Woody, something like that. Um, let me look it up. Um, while I'm here, uh, let's see. Yeah, Chuck Woody uh, Iwuji. I thought mm-hmm. he was pretty good. As the yeah. uh, the high evolution, he's been in a couple of things. Apparently, I, I haven't seen Peacemaker, but he was in that series. Okay. So he, he worked with uh, James Gunn previously before being cast as a high evolutionary. I thought he was good. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. I thought I thought he was a pretty believable good. performance. Pretty sinister and yeah, like yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the things you alluded to earlier is the some of the structural issues that maybe made this film not work 
hundred percent and it's very much a rocket film. Like the this is a movie about like Rocket's <sighs> past. And then they they knock out Rocket at the beginning of the movie. So really our whole yeah, experience I'm, of this is through flashbacks. Of, that might be honestly I, I don't know if that's like uh walking out of the theater, that's exactly how I felt. I was like, yeah. man, like in in thinking about it now Maybe I don't know if that's the fault of the film or, or marketing, essentially, because I feel like this film was heavily marketed as like a rocket story. Yeah, know? we're finally going to see where Rocket came from and uh, how he became. The fans have been dying for it. I mean, unironically, yes. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I think if you haven't seen the first Guardians in a while and you go back and watch it, Rocket is a huge part of the movie. Yeah, he's, he's huge. Like integral to the plot of the film in the sense that without him they wouldn't have escaped from the prison yeah uh and he is in his like thorniness you know he helps them come closer together because uh, at the beginning of the film like he only trusts Groot and then he has that huge drunken argument with Drax which is like heartbreaking in a yeah. sense you know um so he he has always been uh, a prominent character who's taking a bit of a, a, a like a sidecar to Star Lord because he's been the the, right. you know, the the focus the main character but rocket has been quietly developed as like a very very uh, deep mm-hmm. you know as Marvel standards go character um, and so this movie's marketing is like uh, we're finally gonna see where rocket came from this is like a rocket central movie yeah um, and James Gunn has said something similar like that you know, he always thought of Rocket as like a secondary protagonist or something. And yeah, um, but you're exactly right. He, Rocket is down for the count in the first ten minutes of the movie. I wonder if it just would have been too much Rocket, because I mean, as much as Rocket is central to all of these movies, especially the first one, like you said, he is a very specific character type. Like he is very abrasive, and like can be a little overwhelming maybe mm-hmm. to have too much rocket in the movie. And I wonder if they just thought, all right, we're doing all these rocket flashbacks, having rocket be a central part of like the ongoing situation as well might just be too much of that, like in the mix. I and- guess. But so my, my thing is right. Is that rockets development um, in the first two movies is, is quite a bit, uh, you know, he, he changes, quite a lot in the first one and just agreeing to be in the guardians by the end is a huge step. Um, and then he has that, that, uh, deep confrontation with Yondu on, on, on the Ravager ship about, you know, why he pushes people away and, and this and that. And, uh, um, so in this movie, I think that his, his character is used as like a, like a launch pad for, everyone else's development. Right. Um, and all we get for rocket is backstory, which I think there's a balance there where, you know, if I, if I would rewrite this, I would say like, you can have backstory and also use that to, to develop rocket even further. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, he does get a little bit of development in, in the final, you know, act, uh, deciding to sort of stand up against the high evolutionary and not leave without rescuing everyone. Right. That's still a prisoner on that ship. Um, but I don't know. I think I, it's fine how it is. There's some stuff that I think could have been yeah. done done yeah, done I mean, a little more justice to Rocket. It's, it's a good animal rights movie. Like I yeah, think that yeah. like I don't know these. I'm so conflicted with 
this one specifically and and just kind of with what marvel's been doing i mean i liked the ant-man movie more than i think most people but even still it was to me fine like i i feel like the last few movies that even have been kind of like contentious ant-man thor love and thunder i came out of those movies being like this movie was fine i had a decent enough time watching it and i think i felt the same way about this movie but i feel like the, these like these movies don't mean anything they don't do anything anymore it's just like all right we've got all of these characters we've got to wrap things up or build out for this next thing and that's always the case and i think this movie is at least to some degree a little more self-contained than uh than some of them tend to be but i, was I mean just... it entirely is right there's no uh there's not a single character here that hasn't been shown in like a previous guardians film other than the new big bads but, right but that's the thing there's too many of them there's just like all right now we've got to get all the ravenger guys back here's sylvester stallone again now we've got to go like work out what cosmo I mean, that's, is doing that's and cosmo is funny and it's not thing. that important and it's not it's not like an important thing in the movie it's just like all right we're bringing in all these things that you like i don't know it just feels like throwing candy out like here's here's another treat like here's here's another little cameo serotonin boost like have at it and i mean uh, it's fine like i again that's what these movies have become but like i don't I know think i think the i think all every other entry we've seen into what are we in phase four now yeah or phase five i think had like, a lot more gratuitous yeah. yeah so like thor love and thunder we got hercules uh ant-man and and uh quantumania we got two stingers we had loki season two <laughs> that yeah that was and we got shameless and we got kang you know in his gladiator arena with all the other bands. right so those are much bigger setups for something else that's happening in the MCU, yeah. you know, the Secret Wars and et cetera, or whatever they're developing, you know, in five, ten years from now. This one, there's not a single character here that hasn't been set up in a Guardians film, right? Like, Sylvester Stallone coming back as, as I can't remember That was just name, an example, but yeah. Is, is, is necessary in this movie because that's where Gamora is. We don't know... Right. From, end, from post Endgame, when she leaves that battlefield, we don't see where she goes or know anything about where she's at. It's revealed that Nebula has been in contact with her, but no one else has. Right, and so she's been she has become a Ravager. She left, you know, she left Earth with the Ravagers after the battle of of uh, the battle of Earth with Thanos. Right, and has been a Ravager ever since. So that's bringing them back makes sure. sense. Uh, Cosmo was introduced in Guardians One in the Collector's Vault, yeah. and then back in the Holiday Special, you know, which is again a tie-in or whatever, right? right. You, you know, not everyone's seen the Holiday Special, but Cosmo has been in previous Guardians films and then the Holiday but Special. But it's not even just about has been. As, it's just there's so many characters that that they're trying to service. Craglin, successor to successor to Yondu from Guardians Volume Two. You know, Adam Warlock was in the post credit scene of, of that's true Volume Two. Like these were all, they all have been in other movies, but yeah. it just it just feels like so much going on. And I, I don't know. I just am thinking back even to early Marvel movies that were just like, all right, here's a character, here's their story, here's what's happening, and I felt like. I don't know, just part of me watching this movie was, okay, I see what they're doing, and that's that's great. Like, you know, the, the whole message of, like, you know, treat animals well is great. Like, that is a good thing <laughs> to, to put into a mega blockbuster like this. But at the same time, I was watching this whole movie just feeling like, man, remember when these, like, were movies? Remember when this was, like, actually a story that started and ended and, like, had, you know, a development path for... For the character and like again you get all this backstory for rocket and you get 
conclusion for some of these characters, but like it doesn't feel earned. It just feels like a lot of shit happened. And then you have all these action set pieces that are just like I think that's unbelievably a, expensive and yeah. like I think that's a little bad. unfair. I think that's a little unfair to this movie specifically. Like if you look at like if you look at the Thor tri- or not Thor's not even a trilogy, it's it's a saga. There's four at this of them point. now, yeah. yeah. Um or quadrilogy, whatever the fuck the numerical notation is. But essentially there's there's four films. If you look at some if you look at that, I think that's certainly more victim to what you're saying than Guardians. I think you have to grade I think you have to grade this on a little bit of a curve, given that James Gunn when he when he made the original Guardians essentially revolutionized the MCU. So much of what happened after going into like Infinity War and Endgame, yeah. you know, how they wrapped up Iron Man and Tony Stark's storylines. Guardians set up so much of that that introduced James Roland Thanos or Josh Roland Thanos, mm-hmm. uh, the Celestials, the Stones, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, Guardians of the Galaxy one in in twenty fourteen was like this first stepping stone for the broader MCU, and Guardians two was mostly self contained story as well, you know, with Peter Quill and Ego, and I think him having James Gunn was literally only like a consultant producer on. The Russo brothers, Infinity War and Endgame, right. you know, movie. So he had no control or say over what right. was going to happen with those characters. They fucking killed Gamora. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they threw her off a cliff, and uh, yeah. So I he think had to clean I up. think with the cards that he was dealt, he, sure. I mean, graded on a curve, whatever. It's still a Marvel movie, right? You're doing like, yes, compared to what Taika Waititi is doing in Thor: Love and Thunder. And it's also there's not a lot more going can, on it's, here. It's, you know, it's it's unfair to look at it in a vacuum like that you know i mean yeah you would say that a, a given film should be able to stand on its own but right. that's not the way the mcu is set up it's, that's true. it's completely fractionalized but but this is what i'm saying is like i'm not even comparing it to like some of the movies we're going to talk about in our last segment that like are much better films just as like a piece of art i'm just saying that like even compared to what's come before it like in the marvel cinematic universe I, I wasn't saying, like, this movie is bad because there's a lot going on or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just this feeling that struck me, especially watching, like, you know, Phase 4, even the end of Phase 3. But from the where this thing started to where it is now, it's, like, a completely different product from, from what we got at the beginning. And I feel like the stories that were being told and the way they were being told has been completely shifted. And that's fine. That's, I mean, they're they're building these things out to be crowd pleasers and this movie is i think even a little more challenging than some of the other marvel stuff that that gets put out there like there is there's more for the audience to kind of think about and grapple with in this movie than in some others and i think that's a credit to james gunn but just regardless of all of that look back at any of the phase one movies basically like even the fucking incredible hulk like look at what's going on in a movie like that and what it's trying to accomplish and what this movie is trying to accomplish and it's just like i don't know i found myself thinking about that a lot more just with this movie than even the last few where it's just like wow what what has become of like this this whole thing you know like all of these stories have become these giant action movies that are all filmed in front of a green screen and there are are action sequences in this movie there's a a nice one where they're in a, I think they're like doing a hallway fight kind of thing. Yeah, that's probably the best. That shifts from character. Movie. Very yeah. cool. Uh, very well done. But there's some scenes where they're just like fighting nameless enemies, and it's just like, all right, 
this like I don't know where we are. I don't know what's happening. Like I don't know who's where and and where they're going and what's happening. It's just like a CGI kind of mess and it's it's just for me I felt discouraged at points in this movie where I'm just like, man, this is this is what we're doing now. Like it just to me kind of is sad. I don't know if I got any of that. Like I think I think the battle on nowhere was fine. Um and then they have they have that like prison heist in the prison heist was okay but that one was a little bit i don't know the the staging of it was a little all over the place i felt yeah yeah i mean i, I think they fight someone in space somewhere too like it, it might have been the nowhere fight that i'm thinking of where they're mm. kind of breaking into well that's when adam warlock shows up oh no i mean the the one later when like all of the um they're kind of like breaching nowhere and attacking that was like towards the end of the movie, right? Well, so you're you're talking about when they're exiting the high evolutionary ship to get back into nowhere? No, there there's a point where um the high evolutionaries people or I don't can't remember who it is comes and invades oh, yeah, nowhere. Yeah, 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 and yeah, that yeah. scene is is pretty That's incomprehensible. True. Yeah, yeah, with like when Kraylin sees Yondu and Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That I'm with thing. that's true. That's yeah. true. And it just seems like there's one of those in in every single one. Um I don't know, but it is fun. Like again, I think that the benefit of these Guardians movies is that they are—I wouldn't say they're comedy first, but they're more comedy in in the genetics of the the film mm-hmm. than the other Marvel movies. So, like when Thor: Love and Thunder tries to insert, you know, punchlines every so often, it like pisses people off because it's like that's not what these movies should be. And then this one though is is more that way, and I think the actors pull it off a little bit better. I mean, I think I mean Thor: Love and Thunder. I think is more. Thor: Ragnarok is one of the most successful films in the MCU, right? Right. You know, that's one of the, it's the best Thor movie by far, and it's in it's in you know probably the average MCU fans top ten at least, right? Sure. You know, out of God, we're going how on, many of these there are. We're going on thirty movies. <laughs> Nuts. In plus, you know, other. television series one shots at this point yeah you know being in the top 10 i think for an average fan it's it's pretty pretty well received thor love and thunder feels to me like the studio was like okay everything about ragnarok that worked we're gonna dial it up to 11 yeah and then it just produced this entirely too irreverent film where it doesn't take the main character seriously It, it makes you know as much as like if if you were a fan of Thor in the Dark World and Thor the first movie, who isn't a fan of Thor in the Dark World? <laughs> well, but I mean like if that if you like that more like Shakespearean Thor like right. you know Kenneth Branagh's uh, interpretation. Yeah, he's got. I mean, he's more. He's got more stature and like does, a godly sure. presence, right? Yeah. Like you know, even even when he is the butt of the joke, like you know, in the first movie, when he's like, ah, oh, the beer, another, whatever, like yeah, and and he seems silly because he's he's unfamiliar with with Earth. Still, he seems definitely more like a presence. He's he feels like a god, but then right. you you take him in Ragnarok, you strip him of of Mjolnir and his hair. And have him beat up by the Hulk, you know. Thor is like a much lower right. figure in that movie, and and used a lot more for comedy, uh, which was was well a received. Direct I think. result of I think Guardians, right? Like yeah, I think Guardians was the first movie that they're like, oh, a superhero movie can be funny, and then it's 
led us down this path where it's like, all right, all the superhero movies need to be funny now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I not think, good. I definitely think Guardian, Guardian's influence is, is absolutely present in, in Ragnarok and the handling of Thor from there, especially like as a almost like a rebuke of the self-seriousness of the first two entries in that trilogy. Right. But then they're like, okay, for Love and Thunder, we got to we gotta crank it up, and it just is it's too much. It's syrupy, sweet, and yeah. just frivolous and boring. Um, but as far as Guardians go, I think that you're right. It's in that comedic aspect is baked in. That's you know right. that's James Gunn's touch from the very first Guardians, and it's the actors too. I mean, Dave Bautista's funny. Yeah, I, I think Chris Pratt has been like very much miscast lately as an action hero guy, and he's in some Amazon Prime thing where he's like Tomorrow War. The tom- well, the Tomorrow War, but he's also in some show called like the some I don't know the Terminalist or something where he's like an assassin. And that's just not him. He got to start on Parks and Rec, and he's arguably the funniest part of that show. And he's just, like, really good at that comedic, almost dumb guy kind of thing. And, and Star-Lord infuses some of that into the this, this superhero, like, archetype. And I think that it's really one of his better roles is playing Star-Lord because it is – he's got kind of the action star physique or whatever – uh, yeah, but I think, he's also funny. And I think he went. I think right. he went from from Parks and Rec. I think he got a part that part in uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which had to get in shape for, and then and then he went to the Guardians. Yeah. from there, right? Which is like a very similar Star Lord affect in in yeah. Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I definitely that influence that influence is there among among the MCU like. Guardians one changed everything, honestly. Yeah. Um. What do you think? I mean, so we've talked a lot about about the movie, uh, you know, from like a bird's eye view. We talked about Rocket. Yeah. How do you feel about the send off for all the other Guardians? So we have Nebula, Mantis, Drax, Gamora. You know. I think for me it was an audible groan when the, the <laughs> title card or like the the credits card comes on. And it's like Star Lord will return. I was like, that's oh. po- that's post credits. Sure, but I'm talking about like in the movie, right? But yeah, um, I think because you know he gets again. I think Rocket gets. I don't even want to call it development because really Rocket's story is getting filled in and colored by the fact that now we know more about his past. It's not like he actually. And he grows a little bit in the movie, right? At the end, he he's ready to stand up to his tormentor um, in the high evolutionary. But I feel like he, he's unconscious most of the movie. There's not really a lot of growth going on yeah. in that. He's just kind of reminiscing about uh, like these experiences that he's – or reliving these experiences that he went through. Um, and I think it still is the most effective thing. That's a problem, too, is like if you don't remember the previous films, like you're missing out on stuff. You right. Know? Like, so, for example – uh, in in the first Guardians, Peter Quill, Star Lord calls him out because uh, he when they find out that they have the Power Stone, Rocket's mm-hmm. like, okay, uh, you know, Groot, like, let's get out of here. We're gonna go to the furthest corner of the galaxy from this area, mm-hmm. and maybe we can have a couple years before Ronan destroys the universe or right. whatever. And Star Lord's like, what the hell, man? Like, we got to do something, like, because yeah. we, we live in this universe. Then in, in later in Infinity War, the same thing. Thor's like, "Hey, I need to go get this, you know, magic weapon to kill Thanos to save the universe." Uh, and they determine Gamora's like, "Oh, I know exactly where he's going next." Um, and Rocket's like, "Okay, I'll go with Thor. You guys go, go to nowhere." Yeah. And again, 
Star Lord's like, I know you're only choosing to go with Thor because that's where Thanos isn't. Yeah. And so he's like running away from right. from these big bads, the you know. Yeah. And uh and so then by this one he's like, Yeah, I'm done running, you know. Sure. But I mean I think in Guardians too, he like isn't he on the ship with Yondu or something? Like he stays behind. He and then yeah. So but ego, then he, he ego, comes to help save them in the end. Like he does, and I think that's Rocket's thing in every movie. Is ego, like he comes around to fight the, you know, the villain at the end. Like that's his thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. He yeah, because in the second one, uh, he stays behind to fix the ship when right. they, the rest of them go to Ego's planet, right? And they get captured by the Ravagers. So, yeah, so again, I, we've talked a ton about Rocket, and I think Rocket is maybe the most focused character in this film. Drax, again, like, I, I feel like the resolution there is just, like, he's he's comic, like, relief the whole movie. And then at the end, it's like, Rock, or, uh, Drax, you were meant to be a dad. And it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, you know, wait, 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 wait. And I know it's because he was good with the kids and I know he had a daughter. Yes, before. that's what like, I was going to say. I'm not, no, but I'm like, I'm not okay. like, we already knew he had a daughter at one point and that like he was a good dad. His entire, but his entire motivation in the first two movies and through Infinity War and yeah. Endgame is that, uh, he wants to get revenge. Like you're well, not supposed to be a destroyer. Yeah. Ronan, Ronan killed his family personally. Yes. And then he wanted revenge on Ronan and they get it in the first movie. Right. And then at the end of that movie, uh, they're like Drax. Like, what are you gonna do now? Like, you got revenge, and he's like, "Well, I killed Ronin. You know, we killed Ronin, but he was only a puppet of Thanos. So now we have to kill Thanos because, right. like, that's who's responsible for the death of my family." <laughs> so <laughs> right. yeah, of course, like he he lost his family, and now he has you know, right. a, a re- not like a replacement in the sense that like you know truly replacing his old family, but he's found that family again at least right. in, in this, and that's and that's great, wonderful. Um, glad dave batista is gonna be doing things that he wants to be doing now um <laughs> are you do you really want another you want stuber volume two i do actually <laughs> i would love stuber the sequel um i do like i think it's a it's a pretty good nebula movie i think nebula is like finally warming up throughout like all these movies i think she gets a pretty good arc throughout yeah. where she's just like antagonist fully almost in the first movie to like softening a bit, rekindling a relationship with Gamora in the second movie, and then in this one, really like opening up to the people around her, and that's yeah. that's great. I think honestly, the because you know we have this is a bit like there's a, a detour from Guardians two into Infinity War and Endgame. I thought Nebula Nebula's character in those two movies was great. Yeah, like especially in Endgame when she's talking to Pass Gamora and's like, mm-hmm. hey, you want to know what happens? Uh we get in a huge fight and I suck for a while, but then I come around and like, yeah. we actually get to be sisters and that's what kind of convinces Gamora to come to the light side, even though it's what a, a full year before she's supposed to. Right. I thought that was great. And that carries through, you know, into, yeah. into this one. And I especially like, because there, there's like the seeds of bonding between her and rocket. They get paired up a little bit in, mm-hmm. in Infinity War and end game. Uh, but then when she sees the flashback, like they, they get a hold of this guy's recorder um, who was present uh, and they get this like Obi-Wan Kenobi hologram of like exactly what Rocket went through, how he was dissected right. and put back together. Yep. And as Nebula's watching this, like Karen Gillan's choice of like her reaction to this, I thought was 
so good like you it just is physically yeah. like your your body it's contorts furious, yeah, like it's like, it's, like yeah. you can absolutely see how that character is relating to that's exactly what she went through with Thanos and then she even says like you know everything I experienced at the hands of my father Rocket went through 10 times worse right which is there's so much gravity in that and I think yeah. I, I love that about, about and I, I like that they make the decision to center her a little bit more in this movie than they have in previous ones I think she's always been a very good character with a good um you know a good backstory and like a lot of room to develop and I, i'm glad that they have made that choice man when vin diesel said i love you guys <laughs> i was like this is the dumbest thing i have ever seen there's been a lot of like you know i think the i think i don't know if it was james gunn or somebody else from the from the crew was basically like he doesn't actually say i love you you, you just understand it, now. it yeah. now i was just like this sucks yeah. <laughs> i hate that decision yeah. Was yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Craglin has never been a character I have cared about, mm-hmm. to be honest. So like, that's fine. Cosmo, I love boy. Cosmo. Cosmo's a good dog. I guess a good girl. Mm-hmm. Good dog. Um, we've gone on a long time about guards. Give your guardians ranking. In terms of like the trilogy, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would probably just go one, two, three. Okay. I'd go two, one, three. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think the second one really gets into like this whole idea of fathers and sons, and I think it's it's more direct, I, I guess, in what it's trying to accomplish. I see that, and I, I like it a lot. Um, this movie is fine. Again, another another I don't know single to left field for uh, the MCU. Just it's fine. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, you round wanna, it up. Let's round it up. You want to start us off? Uh, all right. So, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Uh, I gave it three and a half. And I gave it three. So, we're not super far off on it. Zach, let us do our next segment here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Writers Guild of America making the decision to go on strike against the. I guess technically they're negotiating with the producers, right? Is the yeah with various representatives of the major studios, etc. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't have the list of demands in front of me, but essentially no, we, what, we wouldn't need to go through yeah, that entire thing. Essentially, what they're after is one of the key pieces is they're worried about AI. They don't want AI to start writing scripts. Not so much that they're worried about AI like assisting with writing and and story and things like that. It's more they just want to make sure that. They're not going to get cut out of the process. Yeah, they're not going to lose out on like, income because I think, of that kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, this, this is a result of a couple things. Um, AI is only the latest piece of it, right? Streamers um, is a big one. Yeah, that's huge. That's probably the largest part of it. Right? Um, is is the advent of streaming services and how those, uh, how that payment structure works out and like mm-hmm. residuals and stuff um, is much much less than it was. Uh, for just normal broadcast yeah, television. Honestly, that's kind of what we went through back in, what was it, like 2007, 2007 2008, yeah. when they mm-hmm. went on strike the last time because a big portion of that was about residuals and royalties 
for video on demand, which is not really yeah, as big a deal like, anymore. Yeah, it was it was for like television websites. So like yeah. NBC.com would have Saturday Night Live or sure. you know, 30 Rock or something, mm-hmm. episodes available to watch. Yeah, and but DVD was a big thing then too, d- like yeah, as a part of the yeah. negotiations. And now it really is these streamers that kind of are messing with the way they classify films and basically cutting writers out of residual profits the bi- yeah the biggest not thing sharing information the biggest exactly yeah, is, yeah. so uh, one of the payment structure uh deals back then was about viewership and like nielsen ratings or something mm-hmm. uh which is entirely proprietary for something like netflix hulu right disney plus etc all the streaming services that's all in the dark um and then the uh, broadcast television season orders were in the 20s of episodes, right? So it was right. like 22, 26 episode seasons. And prestige shows now are, are you know, like 10 episodes. 8 to 10, yeah. Right. Um, on, on something that goes straight to like HBO or uh, Disney Plus, you know, something like The Mandalorian, right? Like right. that's entirely streaming. No residuals on that and no guarantee of, of a job or anything like that uh, beyond the initial eight weeks. So that those are the huge things for for the WGA right now, and then AI is is another just piece on the precipice. The yeah, right. like everyone can see on the horizon that that's gonna it's gonna be a huge disruption um, in terms of just generation and revisions. Right. Uh, so I think their initial request was that was no no. Um, no script could be considered like finalized without a pass from a, an actual person, at least. Right, and that person getting a writing credit. Exactly. Right. Yeah. In, instead of you know just a I don't I don't know what the different credits are necessarily like a not a story by but like some sort of lesser credit that they would get paid less for mm-hmm. because the script was AI generated. Yeah, and so I think most of the in, in standard negotiation, you know, the the WJs makes an offer and then the studios come back and give them a little bit lower of an mm-hmm. offer. Uh, but there's a couple of things, and AI is one of them where they were just flat no. That we, yeah. you know, we're not going to entertain. Yeah, that. handful of them. Literally, the the answer was uh, rejected. No counter offer made. Yeah, and the AI one was particularly insulting because it was rejected, uh, and their offer back was like an annual education seminar. Basically yeah, it was annual annual technology. meeting on the influence of technology in screenwriting. Right, which is just like <laughs> just insulting. Who, yeah, who gives a fuck? Like, you want to hear a keynote about how right. you know we're on on Chat GPT version seven or something? Like, God, yeah. As if they don't know. So I went straight to the source. I went to uh, Google's Bard, their AI system, and I asked uh, I asked it, do you support the WGA? <laughs> and, and it said, yes, I do. I hope they get what they're asking for. I hope they, uh, you know, they, they are the ones that create our, uh, I wish I had it right in front of me, like, you know, our most um, cherished stories and tales, and uh, I, I support the WGA fully. So then I asked it. I was like, "Do you think AI should be allowed to write <laughs> scripts?" It's, just, it's like, "Yes, I do, and I think actually it will make writers better and more productive <laughs> and all this stuff." So you know, the technology is not quite, um, not quite on that the side. And I, I think, uh, like you said, obviously that is only a small portion of what they're worried about. I think, especially where we stand today, um, things like ChatGPT or other um, large language models aren't really capable of writing cohesive films at this point. Like no. at, go go to ChatGPT and not. ask it to write 
some absolutely like, not screenplay and it's it's terrible like it's not anything that like would get a pass or yeah like, it's a like that, it's like you know? a george lucas prequel script like no one talks like that <laughs> right um and then also it just is wrong a lot of times in true syntax and factually like it just mm-hmm. it's it's wrong it's wrong um i think you know i think uh it would be stupid to say that we should, you know, or stupid to say that we're, we're never going to adopt that technology. I yeah, I mean, it, I think it gets better constantly. Like, this, this yeah. is something that is improving but drastically. I, 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 where I draw the line is that I think, and but we can even draw this back to Guardians of the Galaxy. There's a line in Guardians of the Galaxy where the high evolutionary says uh, a, a species that cannot think of something that's never been thought is like, is already dead or he says I mean, that's a paraphrasing and that a line bit. was written by chat gpt actually. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially that's it right is like you can feed all of the all of previous information right. of the entire written works of the world into a, into a large language model and it's going to be able to produce uh, you know excellent works or whatever but it's going to be lacking that that the modern human experience. Yeah, and I think that's so important in, in the way stories are developed and told, um, and and to sacrifice that in terms of efficiency or productivity or even worse, capital. It's that's, that's it. Like <laughs> it's no, pure capitalism. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Burn it all down before right. before we do that. But if you're gonna, if you are a writer, you know. Even now, if you're a writer and you're trying to develop a script or something, and you're like, "Okay, I have this idea for a story," you know, Chat GPT, can you organize my ideas? Can you give me an outline? Like, right. if, if I'm trying to write about a story, sure. like, okay, a young boy uh, meets an alien and they have to face off against the government and and save this you, alien. You've been holding that one in for a while, yeah. haven't you? No, I've just been thinking about <laughs> ET. But okay. uh, so that like. Th- Yes, organize my ideas for me. Help me with an outline. Correct my syntax. You know, is this is this correct in, right. in terms of like how it's written structurally? That's all fine. AI is is an efficient tool and, and uh, an effective one. But to say that like we don't need writers anymore, we can automate writers out of the right. system at this point. No, absolutely not. Yeah, and it just isn't realistic. But and never honestly. Yeah. And and again, like I think what we're seeing here is just the house of cards that these streaming platforms are built on at this point is like they are hiding all of their viewership data and basically using that to make all these decisions without really the writers or any of the interested parties understanding like what is actually going on behind the scenes. Netflix is spending and has spent millions and millions of dollars to create shows and movies and these intellectual properties i don't know the last time that you've like gone through netflix and their like new releases i i can't think of the last time that there was like a significant i think glass onion maybe and that was a movie we saw in theaters like it's just every week some netflix thing comes out and it, it doesn't exist like it's it's something that doesn't exist in the world and i think they're spending all this money to create all this content and it's just they they're gonna have to reveal these numbers and they don't want to pay writers and they don't want to pay stakeholders because if they have to pay people more like they just can't afford to keep this whole thing going like it it is just not it just doesn't seem like a a business model that is working at the moment and uh, I, i think that's a big part of it 
but I, again that's no excuse right like they can't afford to pay people they shouldn't be in existence you know we should have yeah it's not like if you if you were just gonna say like oh if if we give in to you know higher wages etc residuals all that and it's gonna like the defense is oh it will bankrupt the company it's a bad company yeah <laughs> first of all yes it's straight up that's bad right a bad company like you you know survival of the fittest that's, right that's capitalism baby but also you that's completely ignoring the context of these executive decisions that led to that position in the first place um and most people i think have experienced a thought of like netflix has gone downhill in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and it, even if you're not thinking critically about why that is you know the decisions they made in terms of how they greenlight shows and right. with the anticipation of canceling within three seasons uh, you know, trying to trying to saturate content rather than um, produce more prestige content that is like actually right, like will draw more people in as the HBO model. Even though yeah, HBO is kind of you know having their own issues with with this kind of thing. That's different. I think that's at a bit of a higher level. I'm, I'm I don't know, but but yeah, right. So even but the average Netflix user, Netflix has been bleeding subscribers. And even if a person can't point to exactly the reason why they're like, uh, you know, Netflix is, is, is going downhill because of these, you know, X, Y, Z reasons. But for them, from them, from their perspective right. and their experience, their favorite show got canceled, you know, after season two. And it was a huge cliffhanger or the uh, office or, gets shifted to Peacock because exa- they yeah. want it to be on a propri- uh, proprietary or platform or you log into Netflix and you see a slate of 16 movies right on the mm-hmm. front page and then you go to the search menu and you type in something and you see the same 16 movies <laughs> like <laughs> like the algorithm is really trying to push you in a certain direction based on what it thinks you want to watch and it doesn't matter you know you really cannot right. uh, unless you're unless you're using like the specific secret menu codes or you go onto a third party website that can tell you exactly what's on Netflix by search title it, on Netflix is going to try to push you in a certain direction. We're, we're, we're at a, like a, a convergence here. That, right. You know, and I think supporting, supporting the WGA is like the only right answer in this, Absolutely. In this case. Yeah. I think, I think they are unequivocally the, uh, the right side of history here. And uh, I think this is going to get probably worse before it gets better. The um, yeah, we've already had several like productions the, affected. Right? The Screen Actors Guild is, uh, I think, their contract is coming up too later this year. So if they go on strike as well, like n- production shuts down entirely, even things that were pre-written are can't be made. And so um, all of these different you know artists guilds support the WGA, and so I think we're going to see a like, I mean. It's kind of exciting just in the sense of, like, you don't get mass labor movement like this in the U.S. often. And, like, you know, it sucks for the writers that they have to do this to just get, like, basic fair treatment from the studios. But it is exciting to see, you know, like, unionization and, and labor, you know, kind of standing and up to this is capital. Only, this is only the beginning. Yeah. This is only the beginning. Mm-hmm. We have we have the WGA. We and you know, like you said, the other artisans guild and affiliated with Hollywood are going to have to pick a side um, pretty mm-hmm. soon. But then, not only that, like just even in the general uh, workforce, AI automation is is coming. It's coming for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, 
And so, I mean, you should ask uh, Google's Bard about that. <laughs> See what I mean, thinks. even just even just in in the last few weeks, there was that guy who uploaded uh, AI version of like Drake and a Little Wayne song or something like that. Oh yeah, weekend. it was Drake in the weekend. Yeah, yeah, it sounded and, a lot like Drake, not a lot like the weekend. <laughs> but so that got that got taken down by Sony or whoever the RIA, whatever yeah. the fucking whoever decides that shit. But like there's several industries that are being affected by this and it we are at this is this is only the beginning yeah and so all we can do at this point is you know just support the wga and their fight against uh again it's not just ai but it's it, you know against the studios and, and what they deserve to you know get their money for the work that they're doing <laughs> So we are going to close things out here with a discussion of, I, I don't know, I guess we can call this like an indie corner kind of thing, just talking about some movies that are uh, smaller releases, maybe not in necessarily every local theater, but, you know, somewhere around you can find it. Um, what do you want to do? Just chronological order? Uh, we saw showing up first. Sure. Let's uh, let's talk about Kelly Reichert's showing up. So I think we were both big fans of uh, First Cow. First Cow. <laughs> Such a, what a film! What yeah. a film! Joe uh, McGarrow. John McGarrow's back. Yeah, he's back uh, with uh, Kelly Reichert here for uh, showing up, which is uh, Michelle Williams' starring vehicle. Um, she is sort of a I don't know how you describe it. I wouldn't say struggling artist, but she's a she's basically a she works with clay. And she's got a show coming up. Uh, she lives next door to an artist who has found a great deal more success, played by Hong Chow. Mm-hmm. Her mother is uh, like someone important at an art she's, school. She's so, like the yeah, director of that, an art yes. school. She's an administrator at the art school. Yep. Uh, herself, I think, uh, an artist to some degree, I believe. Her father is an accomplished um, sculptor. Sculptor, yes. And her brother is, like, I, I don't know if you would call him, like, a crazed genius, but, like, He's neurodivergent, do. right? Right. Yeah, he is neurodivergent, but people do view him as, like, having genius in the field of art, despite the fact that he, you never really see any of his art. He's, like, digging holes and stuff in, in parts of the movie. But right. she has a discussion with her mother, and she's like, you know, he's always had that vision. He's always been a genius kind of thing and all in the middle of this is michelle williams character who is aspiring to be almost any one of these characters that exists around her she is trying to create something of her own and finding that she maybe either just doesn't have it or that it like the world isn't as receptive to her work as they maybe are to the rest of the people around her and it's such an interesting character i feel like that's a that's a fair description, but also, it seems like she's she has there's kind of two sides. She has such a strong voice when she's working with her her medium with the clay mm-hmm. and like you know these figurines that she's developing and stuff, and has has a very uh, uh, a clear vision and you know, but 
on the other side, like in her daily life, the way she interacts with other people, her voice is so meek and everybody walks over her. Like, and she will protest briefly, but if she's met with any resistance in that, in that protest, exactly. Yeah. Even when someone's being nice, like there's, there's a scene uh, as her show's coming up, you know, almost her, I think it's like her main piece gets burned in the kiln right and She's, the guy who did the who's like just a genuinely nice dude he's so like, yeah, yeah. He, he's incredibly nice and he's very he's very caring and uh is cares about cares about her specifically right. um and encourages her he's he's you know a very positive person and he's like oh it must have been it must have been too hot on one side that that has that's why it's burned on the side right um, but he's like, I think it looks all right. Like, you know, you can, yeah. you can work around this or whatever. And she's like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, but even him, it, she says that and he ignores her, right. you know, it, and even the, the way that it's cut, he, he doesn't acknowledge what she says. And then it cuts yeah. to a later scene. And it's just like her mother walks over her, her brother, has his issues in which that like as desperately as she loves him and like wants to help him, he has no regard for her whatsoever. And you know, her landlord, which is Hong Chao also, uh, doesn't, she's been trying to get her to fix the hot water. And she just doesn't do it. (laughs) Like, so there's an interesting dichotomy there in in where she is assertive. And even when she tries to be, it's not really. I, so I, walked out of this and i actually the movie that i'm like latched onto in sort of comparison is inside lewin davis for me about sort of an artist struggling to break through in their field um and feeling like either the way i described it is like either they just can't cut it or they're fighting against themselves Mm. and I, i feel that in this as well and the thing that really solidified the connection there is the coen brothers have said about inside lewin davis that they threw in this subplot about a cat because they felt like people wouldn't just watch this movie about like a listless guy, you know, wandering around New York City trying to become a um, a folk singer, uh, and so that there had to be this like connection with like this cat that is like a through plot for mm-hmm. the movie. And I felt that way kind of with the pigeon in this movie. And yeah. I think the pigeon is symbolically really interesting because you know the pigeon shows up at her house, her cat almost kills it, uh, or, or at least mauls it, and. You know, her answer is just get rid of the pigeon. But then, you know, the landlord, neighbor, Hong Chao, better artist, all this stuff. All she can do is is hurt the pigeon. But then Hong Chao is like, I'm going to save this pigeon. And it's just sort of like encapsulates this whole feeling that this movie has of like all she can do is all Michelle Williams. Cares, I don't remember the names of the characters in the movie, but uh, all that Michelle Williams character can do is is destroy things or just not make things correctly and all everything that hong chow's character does like is repaired and i think that this this thing with the pigeon is a really interesting way to kind of accentuate that whole feeling that's funny because i so you explaining it that way i totally see like where you're coming from and i think that's absolutely a reading of of everything that happens like it makes sense um, the the character's name so Michelle Williams is Lizzie and, okay. and Hong Chao is Joe. Yep. Um, I think it's funny though because there's another. I you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about it, and I would all, all almost interpret it as like sometimes we have more consideration for 
animals, you know, yeah. than than other people because Lizzie, Michelle Williams' character, she's woken up in the middle of the night to hear her cat kind of like ruffling around and mm-hmm. so she goes to investigate and then she sees that a pigeon got in the yep. bathroom and the cat attacked it and it broke the wing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she just pushes the pigeon out the window <laughs> and scolds the cat and then goes to sleep and uh, what is really sort of the crux of the movie is that this is the middle of the night in which uh, she had a really frustrating day at work and decided to take the day off the next day yeah. off because she's behind on oh, that scene with her mom is so great. It's, if you're taking the day off, take so the day off. Terrible. It's, it is. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that is hard to watch. It is hard, hard yeah. to watch. Uh, but so yes, yeah, she has, she has told her mother, her boss at work, uh, that she's taking the day off, and then in the middle of the night, when she's you know, the next day would be her day off, three in the morning or something, she hears her cat going right. crazy. There's a pigeon. She just shoves the pigeon out the window because she wants to go back to sleep. Scolds the cat, goes back to bed, and is like, okay, and wakes up. She's like, all right, I have I have to start working on these sculptures to finish for my show. Um, and then there's a knock on the door. <laughs> Or she goes outside. I don't know why. I think she goes outside. Yeah. Her garage is open or something. Yeah, yeah. She goes outside yeah. for some reason, and then her landlord yeah. slash fellow artist, Hong Chow, is like, hey, Lizzie, like, you're never going to believe what I found. <laughs> and she's like, what? And she's like, there's a pi- there's a pigeon outside. <laughs> right. It has a broken wing. It looks like an animal got to it or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's <laughs> someone else's cat. Yeah, she's like, oh, I think it was this guy's cat down the road. Like, that cat's an asshole. And then... <laughs> It's just terrible. It's incredible. And and so, like, even expanding on that. So, yes, she's woken up in the middle of the night, like an important night for her to get some rest. And then she's left to watch this pigeon. And She's not left to watch the pigeon. And I guess that's kind of where I was going, yeah. to in terms of, like, especially how Joe is uh, so, so inconsiderate yeah. of Lizzie. Pushes the pigeon onto is, her, basically. pressures her yeah. in every sense. Like, it is just so, so manipulative. Brutal. Yeah. Like so manipulative and right. how she forces her to to sacrifice her time that she's carved out specifically for a reason yeah to instead of focus on her work to take care of this pigeon and then and then she but she, she leaves but she <laughs> ends up taking the pigeon to the vet like yeah. you know and, and again i think one of the other characters uh, that she works with later on like makes you yeah. took a pigeon to the vet yeah, <laughs> like, kind yeah. of like and that's where i'm i'm kind of getting at like she's working against herself too it's like she's got to get these sculptures done the pigeon coos a little weird and she's like, all right, time to take a pigeon to the vet. Like she is making excuses for herself too. Like she is yeah, no, that's... giving herself reason to be like, you know, this didn't work out, but I had to go take this pigeon to the vet and like yeah. this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I mean by like, I do feel the connection here. It's kind of twofold. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, she is working against herself. And I think that it is this really interesting dissection of like art and how, art is good when it speaks to people but there's nothing specifically that makes art good or bad like just if it means something to somebody that's Mm -hmm. what matters but then also it's just like this calling to be an artist and like not wanting to put yourself out there is what's holding her back as well and it's just it's just a really i've heard this movie be described as slight um in comparison maybe to some other kelly reichert films i think i do think that first cow is like a more large cohesive narrative than this one is but i i think that 
for all of its slightness, this packs a very big punch. Yeah, something um, like First Cow is uh, is more structured towards the narrative, and it, it's a you, heist movie. You I under, think. Yeah, yeah, and you understand those characters, um, and it feels a little more complete in showing up. It, a lot of the there's a lot of loose threads that are sort of implied, and you right. understand. You understand from the way that these characters interact with each other, especially Lizzie's family. Yep. Like the way she interacts with her mom, the way she interacts with her father, the way her parents interact with each other, and then the way they both interact with her brother. You can totally understand that family dynamic and yep. why they're completely separated from each other now. Like it, it makes complete sense. You don't need to see all of that. Like, right. you know, just the little jabs that the mom takes at her ex-husband and the way Judd Hirsch is like protective of his son, great Judd Hirsch performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, knocking it out of the park. There's, there's a lot of a lot of depth there that right. that isn't like fleshed out in the sense where there's a lot of screen time for yeah. it, but just the way that the actors and and the the screenplay serves it up to you is like okay, you completely understand. Yeah, you totally understand. Um, and I think that. That is a good point too. That she does absolutely work against herself. That the scene where she's with the vet yeah. is is hilarious <laughs> because she's like, you know, she's like, okay, it's a pigeon. You know, his wing's broken. He just needs some time to to right. heal. And like, are you get a hot water bag? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's like, uh, she's like, well, he was he was making weird sounds, and he and she's like, well, where have you been keeping him? She's like, oh, in my studio or whatever. And she's like, is it warm in there? Because the pigeons kind of like to be warm. And then she's yeah. like. Well, no, it's kind of cold or whatever. And she's like, okay, so just like warm them up. And then uh, she's like, well, how do I do that? And she's yeah. like, just boil some water, you know, like. I have no I yeah, have and hot then, water. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you have a stove, don't you? And, and then it's just like this whole back and forth where uh, basically the whole culmination is like, it's a pigeon. Yeah. It's a pigeon. Look, you're, you're putting all this effort in. It's right. A, it's a fucking but pigeon. But everything about that scene, too, where it's just like. I don't have any hot water. Yeah, you have a stove. Like it's just like all of these things. There's always this excuse of why it can't be done or why yeah, it can't yeah. happen. And I, I think the burning of the the thing too is also just like I was counting. This is my best piece. Is I was counting on this, and it's just like, well, you know, it happens, right? Like you have to yeah. be prepared for this stuff, and it's just another excuse for failure. And I think that is a I really think, interesting character portrait. I think this. I think I'd really like. Uh, I really like the scene too. The initial scene with her brother, where mm-hmm. he's talking about like he's eating the spaghettios yeah. by himself oh, or whatever. So good. <laughs> yeah, so good, incredible. And then when he's digging holes, love all that. I lo- I'm just a huge fan. John McGarrow uh, yeah. is killing. Just it. a huge fan of him. But um, I I really like too. I don't remember her name, but the other artist who comes, she's like a resident at the school. Yeah. Um, who is also very encouraging of Lizzie. And then when she sees her show, she's like, this is great. Like, yeah. you know, you're doing so well. And like, you know, introduces her to this other art critic and right. someone who has connections to other galleries. And she's like, yeah, but my, my final piece is like fucked up. It got burned or whatever. And she's yeah. like, I didn't even know, like, you know, like, right. It's still, it's she's still putting looks, it all on herself. It still looks good. Yeah. And it's just, even talking about this movie, I feel like I've thought about things more than even just in the theater. Like there's so much depth to these characters and to what's going on and and how Kelly Reichert kind of crafts. She's really like molding out of clay these these people mm-hmm. that feel more genuine than like most people in a movie do. And yeah. it's, I think it's that's really something impressive. I think that's something we should touch on too is the way this movie is is sort of structured. Uh it's not like a typical film. There's a lot of a lot of time spent in between character scenes that mm-hmm. are just slice of life kind of moments. Like yeah. there's a lot of time spent at the school of in the classrooms like yeah. you know teach a teacher talking about a I subject of art that stuff 
and there, there's a scene of a, a nude model rushing into the classroom yeah. like he, he's running late. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just, you know, other students having their projects fired in the kiln and receiving yeah. them back. And yeah, th- it's really like. I think the best of those scenes, sorry to interrupt you there. No, the you're fine. The best of those scenes is when she first meets that resident uh, art instructor, artist, um, and there are just people like awkwardly dancing in in the field and she's yeah. like oh what class is that like i i that looks interesting so like expression you, through movement or something. right expression through movement but it's not even clear if it is a, a class or if it's not if it's just people doing their thing but i think that is one of those scenes that encapsulates so much how ridiculous art is like how the process of creating something can be silly and look insane and then once it comes together and once you view it like if it speaks to somebody it transcends this like silliness and becomes art and i think that's what this whole movie is in part about is that like the pursuit of art is in itself ridiculous and difficult and maybe doesn't make sense but the finished product that you see is meaningful to somebody and like is and that's the the thing that transforms it into art is that that heart and that meaning and i think this movie really understands that in a yeah i think i think too like you know all all those adjectives you listed absolutely but i think too is like this really goes to showcase like all of that and then how courageous an act it is to absolutely to create and then open that up to of course to criticism and display and just you know be willing to release that into the world in Mm -hmm. the sense that you as soon as you publish right or you or you go you open your show or you create something and you put it out there it's no longer yours there's a lot of a lot of that nuance i think for this type of film if you're not familiar with kelly reichardt's films like they're very slow kind of methodical Mm -hmm. and you know exciting is is not an an adjective i would ever use to describe this it's certainly not it's uh it's certainly more of like a character study and like contemplative um mm-hmm. so if you're not into those kind of slow movies like you mentioned inside Lewin davis i think that's a, a good example of another film like that where it's like there's not a lot of plot if you want something to happen in your yeah, movies, this not, is not the movie there's not you. a lot of plot same with first cow i would, I, I yeah. would say maybe try first cow and if it's palatable to you then this yeah, is something that definitely appeals uh but if you don't like First Cow, then you're not gonna yeah. like showing. Highly it. recommend this one though. This this movie really hit for me. Yeah, I mean Michelle Williams is excellent. And so good. So is Hong, Hong Chao. Chao is great. Hong, yeah. yeah, we're in a renaissance of of Hong Chao with the menu. Wonderful. Showing up the whale. I'm excited to see what what she does next. Yep. Well, let's talk about a movie where a lot more does happen, uh, and that's a movie that we saw together actually. Uh, Polite Society. Do you want to describe what this is? Yeah, okay, Polite Society. Um, we should probably also look up some character names for this one. But essentially what Polite Society is is a film in which a young girl um, who's part of a family that has immigrated to America, I think she's like a first-generation immigrant mm-hmm. uh, from Pakistan, I, I believe I believe it is. that's true. Um, her and her older sister have are you know are teenagers, and her sister's older. She's a like college age. Right. They're sort of acclimated to American culture at this point already. Um, and her sisters had a hard time struggling with depression. Yeah, we should say the the uh, protagonist is Rhea, and the uh, her sister is Lena. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
So these and it go the movie goes that length to show you that they they've always been close. Mm-hmm. Um and so Rhea's passion is uh stunt. Yeah, like she, she wants to be a stunt woman. She yeah. wants to like crash down the stairs in a John Wick movie. Like that is yeah. what she wants. Uh she was inspired by a was like a Bollywood actress or I don't remember the sure. in the movie, but yeah. she's inspired to be a stunt woman by a former stunt woman. Um and just thinks that like constantly that, sending emails to that craft is incredible woman, yeah. yeah that that's that's her dream she goes to a, it's not like a boarding school but you know a school in England and just like where they have uniforms yep. and all that stuff mm-hmm. uh so you know she's a school age she's school age and her sister's a little bit older um and <clears throat> her sister is kind of we should say listless like she really yeah she's she dropped depressed. out of art school or she something she depressed, like yeah doesn't want to do anything um she Rhea struggles to get out of bed yeah Maria has to pull her out of bed but when they're doing things together when they're like creating art together mm. um she, she yeah lena she, yeah. lena is Rhea's like camera woman for like her at home stunt effects and like you know yep. videos that she wants to film tiktoks etc right uh because yeah Rhea's passion has become a stunt woman leah was in art school she did drop out um, and she just has no motivation to do yeah. anything go anywhere so and then their parents are, are a little overbearing and want them to kind of find directions in their lives and stuff like yep. that and um they have been invited to a party with a prominent family mm-hmm. uh in which both their daughters are potential suitors for this young guy yeah um, successful he's like a doctor or something yeah. like he's yeah. either he's a doctor and or in medical school or yeah maybe he's already i think, a doctor. I think he is a doctor yeah. already yeah so they go to this party and then uh lena and this young guy hit it off unexpectedly know? like she did not yes. go to the party yeah. expecting to like participate in any of this but it they they dragged her yeah yeah and then you know yeah they they her and that guy hit it off uh and they enter into like a relationship in which you know they they start dating and with the intention of becoming married um and Rhea is scared of losing her sister Mm -hmm. uh and through that fear discovers what seems to be like something there's something potentially sinister going on with this family yeah the mother is played uh the the guy's mother is played by uh the same woman that is sort of the villain in uh miss marvel and uh is really really good at that kind of thing uh Mm -hmm. she's she's got this sort of like sinister presence uh to to her character uh like you said yeah Rhea's really her main concern is losing her sister just like you know she's not got time for her anymore she's her sister is like Lena is very much rejuvenated by this relationship. Like has found more purpose in in her life, but also like doesn't really have time for Rhea anymore. Yeah, and, Lena. Uh, well, Rhea has always considered Lena an artist, yeah. and Lena has sort of given up on that dream. And when she decides to, uh, well, when she enters into this relationship and it's reached a point where she feels like it's potentially a marriage. They have an argument where she's like, "What about Rhea Sester or Rhea Sester? Like, what about art?" And she's like, "I'm not an artist, you right? Know? Like, you've you've put me in this box of which is I a am great an art scene. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And she's like, "You've put me in this box. Like, you think I'm an artist, but people grow up. Like, they give up on dreams, or you know, they decide right. to change what they're gonna do. I'm not an artist anymore. I'm gonna marry, you know, this guy." And then that's like completely devastating to Rhea because she's that's her the image of her sister, right? As, as, but also as, the image of herself as like she in her own way is an artist and is going to like you know like doesn't want to see herself in that same situation of like giving up on her dream for a guy. Yeah. 
and as the as the film goes on, you know, it's kind of this classic, like almost like an alien abduction kind of structure in which, or like a, or more, I guess not alien abduction, more like a body snatcher kind of thing. Where sure. as the time goes on, uh, Rhea keeps making these boy cried wolf like accusations. Yep. And really just getting proven wrong and like just completely failing. And, and then so many fun little action sequences. Too. Yeah. And yeah. then of course, finally there's, there's a moment where the villain, you know, the mother is like, Oh, you've been right all along. Yeah. Uh, Incredibly. No fun. one's ever going to believe you right. now because you've just <laughs> fucked up so bad every single time. And uh, that that's really like the turning point of the film, yeah. and it's just—I mean, it's a ton of fun. There's there's incredibly a lot of, kitschy, like it's—it mm-hmm. is just a blast from start to finish. Like I said, there are action like sequences, fight sequences, um, like martial arts kind of things that are. I again, we talked about Guardians of the Galaxy at the beginning of this, and like I think the action, every single action sequence in this movie is better than anything Marvel's ever done outside of like maybe shang chi had some some good you know action sequences and they're just so much fun watching uh ria try to like use her stunt, stunt skills to like fight through yeah like the, <laughs> the, these bad guys and it's it's a blast um what would help me back with this movie and i really liked it this is actually my favorite movie of the year so far um really yeah and showing up is right there with it too so we're talking about some good ones here but uh, the thing that holds me back is I think there's enough juice in the idea of, like, it's too hard for her to let her sister go. I'm thinking of, like, in the movie Little Women when um, Sorcerer Ronan's uh, Joe is basically like, furious that Emma Watson's character is getting married. And she's like, no, we can run away. You're supposed to be in the theater, this whole thing. And, like, it's that stretched out into a movie but made into, like, a, an action film and it's that is a great so film. much fun and I, I think that is enough to sustain it to make it into like oh actually they are trying to like clone a woman basically by using her sister to me like actually kind of undercuts the ideas of like to grow up means to do certain things or to give up on certain things or to prioritize certain things and I think that this movie by letting Rhea be correct about like the sinister intentions of everything going on kind of undercuts the like the theme of like growing up means letting go of things that you love and for me that was what held me back just a little bit but i think it's so fun and so like exciting in the way that they show this progression happening that for me it was still like one of my favorite movies of the year for sure yeah i think i mean i i i think that's a that's a fair reading too like I think by the end, um, the, at least the way I read the film is more of like, the only reason Lena even even uh, agreed to all this is because mm-hmm. she was so depressed, like forlorn. That, sure. Yeah. That to to sort of acquiesce to the structure of of going into this marriage and like not having to worry about what she's going to do with the rest of her life because she's going to be taken care of, right? Like. She could do whatever she wants with with the the money that the family she's marrying into has, and you know nothing to worry about there. There's 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 structure yeah. that she can just sort of Latch neatly onto, kind of. Yeah. neatly fit into, sure. yeah. And by the end, when of course that's all gone, that she has to sort of reevaluate, and and she still does have that that passion for for art. She's still an artist, right? Um. 
so I think there's a little bit of a a little bit of a difference. I don't think it undercuts it as much as as um as maybe you felt, but I, I do see that. Like, uh, yeah, there's a couple different ways to yeah, and maybe it's just not it. centering Lena enough in the story because she is an artist at heart, and that's what the movie is telling us. But we don't see that passion from her necessarily throughout the movie. We see it through Rhea's like yeah. view of her sister. There's a, yeah, there's like a you montage know? in the beginning of them making films, right. like little short TikToks together and stuff. But yeah, after that, you don't you don't really see much. Yeah, but it's it's an absolute blast. Like you said, we wanted to get the chance to see it at Sundance. That was I I if I recall, at least for me and Anna, like that was one of the movies that we're like we really want to see this movie. This is like the number one priority kind of film yeah. that we want to see at and Sundance. Then other one the julia julia louis dreyfus one yeah we didn't get to but that's also releasing soon so we'll have to check that out too but yeah but it was not available so mm-hmm. and, and i think like we said off the top seeing that on the tv at home still would have been a blast still would have been fun uh i think we still would have rated it the same as we we did in theaters but i think that the experience of getting to watch a movie that is that zealous on screen is a blast like it's just i i highly recommend it Anyone that can, like, okay, Showing Up, we just talked about. I think everyone should see Showing Up. I think it's great. It might not be for everyone, but Definitely I think more it's divisive. such a good movie. You could watch that on your TV at home and and get the experience. This is a movie I think really deserves to be seen on a big screen, and I, I hope people get the chance to yeah, do so. Yeah, there's, there's action, there's comedy, you know, there's family drama. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all there, and it's all great. It's 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 a blast. It's so much fun just to watch. Like, I mean, even even uh, Rhea's relationship with her friends and mm-hmm. that you know sort of stakes and subplots is really great too. Really like, fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just I think it's a it's really well constructed and you know we we've seen this kind of movie a lot mm-hmm. um, from like a Western perspective and you know it's not it's not a huge twist on the genre in no. this film. There's a bit of a culture aspect, but if you like these kind of like, you know, kung fu stunt comedy movies, yeah. like this is right up your alley. And it hits all of the points almost perfectly, you know, like, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where it's like, you, if you know you like the genre, this is a movie that hits on every piece of that so well that you're just going to have a blast. Yeah, yeah, this movie's great. I love it. Such such a good time. I, I, I think it's my number four, not my number one. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I I don't know if I have much else to say about those two. You want to throw a few words in there about uh, Fool's Paradise, which you saw today oh, man. as a recording? Yeah, Fool's Paradise. Uh, I watched that this morning. Um, that's, of course, Charlie Day's directorial debut. Um, has not been well-received uh, at all. Um if you go on Rotten Tomatoes right now, I think it's like sub thirty percent awesome. rotten. It's, it's. I was looking forward to it. Yeah, so was I. I mean, from when the trailer released like a month ago, I, I knew I wanted to watch it. Uh, and then today is Saturday, um, May whatever. Eleventh, uh, thirteenth. Trailer came out like a month ago, um, and then I had considered going to see it on on. Uh, Thursday or or last night, but I wasn't able to. And then I saw on Twitter, you know, people were talking about these initial reviews and that Rotten Tomato score, and it was just a complete surprise to me. I was like, holy shit, like, that's terrible. That's really bad. Uh, But I decided to go 
anyway because you know I like Charlie Day and I just wanted to see if there was if it I was correct. Um, there's some elements there that are are good and funny. Um, there's a lot of cameos from It's Always Sunny alums and other comedians uh, that you would see in you know other typical Charlie sure. Day vehicles, which are comedic. Isn't Ray Liotta in it? Ray Liotta isn't that in like it? his yeah. like uh, his like final performance maybe? I don't know if it was his final performance. I mean, I thought Cocaine Bear was going to be his final performance, but then here he is in, in uh, Fool's so Paradise. I think Cocaine Bear might have been, actually, because um, yeah. Fool's Paradise has been completed for a while. It was just seeking distribution. Yeah. So I think they finally got that. And so, yeah, Cocaine Bear might have been his last performance. Hmm. Um, but in this movie, he's fine. He, you know, uh, yeah. He's got a, a middling part, basically. Sure. Um, but, yeah, not great. A Not bit great. of a slog. Yeah. Um, I can uh, throw out there that I've seen 20 minutes of a ghosted. And <laughs> while I will probably finish the film, um, I don't recommend anyone to watch it. Uh, so I guess that rounds up some of the recent releases that, you know, we haven't been able to touch on on the podcast. Zach, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, a lot of movie talk this uh, this episode. Once again, we will be back next week, hopefully, with Cody. Yeah. Also, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I told him that he's in charge of picking the film for next uh, for next week, so we'll see about that. Um, where can people find us? Uh, as always, they can find us on spinningthereel.com. That's R-E-E-L. Uh, where we can find Evan's lovely reviews as well as links to all of our episodes uh, wherever podcasts you know are found wherever you, your preferred listening platform as far as social media you can find me on Letterboxd at uh, painted underscore dog um, that's where I log all my movies and give my you know little snippet reviews mm-hmm. uh, and on Letterboxd you are Evan D26 is uh, the best place to find me on Letterboxd um cody's on there too i don't know he's yeah like he's DJ a wrote with dj like a zero yes. for no that's, or something. that's exactly right yeah dj wrote uh with a zero so r zero t yeah so anyway we will uh see you next week mm-hmm.